we spent a lot of, we did a lot of legwork. Um, Jen, you said it, I'm very detailed. I think we spent a couple weeks just introducing John because at least for me, I remember when I introduced this book, I thought I knew John. I'm very familiar with it, obviously. And I, and I've heard teachings on it. So I pretty much had some preconceived notions, but you know, my approach is, is always when I come to scripture, even though you think, you know, continue to treat it as if you don't, you know, continue to, you know, research, do your resources and things like that. And one of the pretty neat things about understanding the background was, you know, really understanding the setting when John wrote this letter. Um, he was about 90 or so, you know, he's towards the end of his life. And this is maybe five years or so before he wrote Revelation. So this is before he was exiled. And when you, when you think about John and the characteristics of this letter, you'll find that he, um, he ministered to churches. And we went on a little excursion, Jeremy, if you remember, and this was pretty enlightening for me. If you look at the region, because he wrote this from Ephesus, and if, you know, if we were to have a map up here, and we had that before, and you were to look at the surrounding churches, it was, what was interesting was seven of those churches were the churches in the book of Revelation that John penned. I'm getting goosebumps as I speak it. Because he's, he's warning the churches, and he called out seven churches. They're actually seven literal churches. So it was the region, he was in Ephesus, the surrounding regi- regions around Ephesus, he's writing them. And we'll get into some slides here. Um, what's often taught is that he was combating Gnosticism, which is true, but that wasn't the only thing he was combating. And we'll get into some of that, but it helped put some color when John wrote this and he, you know, he was coming from love. You know, he, he had a pastoral love for, that's why he's my dear, my dear brethren. You know, I write this so that you may not sin. He was very loving and nurturing. He wasn't writing this as a visitor. He really loved the people. He really loved the sheep that God has entrusted him. And he's writing this letter, really warning them of the many forms of false teaching. And we'll kind of get into that a little bit. And what was it when you, when you find about John is that he was really defending the gospel. And we'll kind of get into that a little bit again. And he wrote the gospel of John. So first John, it's kind of like a really consolidated version of really what he wrote in the gospel of John. So when he wrote First John, um, what, we, what we did in these four or five weeks was when John would throw out these phrases, I would go to his gospel. Um, not that all scripture is good and, and, and it says the same thing, um, but I did try whenever possible. If I wanted to cross-reference a scripture, I'd go from, okay, he wrote First John. Okay, let's go to the gospel of John. And then we would read what he would say there and how he would say it. And then a lot of these phrases that he says, it's not really clear in this letter, but when you go back to his gospel, you're like, oh, it's really loud on what he's saying. So a lot of what he's doing, he's really, he's, he's combating the, the false teachers, uh, the false forms of teaching. And we'll get, well, again, we'll get into that. And he's also just reminding them of the gospel uh, because the gospel has been completely distorted by the time, you know, he's writing this letter. Uh, they're getting inundated from left and right. People are coming with different beliefs, different doctrines, and they, 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 they range in a, in a variety of degrees. And, you know, John is writing this to, again, set the record straight. Again, he says, I'm not writing you a new commandment. He's like, the first commandment I wrote you was really in the gospel of John. I wrote this for you already. I'm not writing anything new. 
Uh, but you'll also see in this letter, again, he's writing from that pastoral heart, but he's also writing with authority. But he, he uses his authority really tenderly and in love. But also he doesn't, he, he, he also cuts it pretty straight as we know that he's one of the sons of thunder. Um, so just a little bit of purview there. You know, um, if, if you guys are, you know, are interested to continue with this study, um, we do have the, the slides, the, everything I just talked about to kind of get refreshed. And I'll, I'll, from time to time, I'll, I'll trickle in on, on some of the things that was taught. Like today, we're going to talk a little bit about, we're going to go back a little bit on that introduction to help set the setting here. Uh, but we made it to verse 5. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 5 through 10, just so that we can get familiar with our passage. So let's, uh, let's begin in verse 5. Uh, So John writes there, he goes, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So last week, again, you know, the key themes for this passage, again, he's, he's, he affirmed the gospel message and we talked about that last week. And part of the gospel message is God's holiness and God's righteousness. See, we, 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 I think in today's, gospel um, message. It's probably like, God loves you. God is love. Um, no, no, God is, yeah, God is love. Yes. Yeah, that's one of his many attributes. But did you know that God is holy and God is righteous? And yes, he is love. Absolutely. But part of the gospel message is really this attribute that God is, you know, God is light. And we'll get into that a little bit. And we talked about last week, um, how we know that we're saved, how we know that we receive the true gospel, because in reality, and that's why we, you know, we, you know, God put it on my heart to start this ministry, is there's really a famine of true expositing the word of God, hearing nothing but the Bible. Don't hear anything else. Just give me the word, give it to me straight, give it to me right, give it to me in love, give it to me in grace. I need to hear from God because I know that's what I need to sustain me. There's a famine out there in, I mean, and we've, we've shared this story that when we were out in the Bay Area, you know, I've driven 50, 100 miles. We, I've, we've driven to, you know, here 100 miles every week for a year and a half because I know that I'm really behind the mission. I'm really behind the purpose. I'm really behind this ministry. So we sacrifice, that was our sacrifice for uh, showing our love and devotion to God by making that commitment. But the point is, because there, wasn't, there was nowhere really for us to go other than um, where we were at that time. But the gospel, because the truth isn't preached, like really the full counsel, the gospel is lost even in the church. And we, we're going to talk a little, we're going to go a little refresher on what that gospel message is, but one of the evidences that you got the true biblical gospel is there is a new birth in you. You're not the same person. That's like evident number one. Uh, and that 
you are being sanctified. God is working in our hearts. We're not perfect. We're far from perfect. We won't be perfected until we leave this life. But the fact, you know, if we have this hunger and desire to grow in God and to grow in the image of his son and to love, that's evidence right there. That, does, that, that did not come from you. That came from God. And that came from the gospel message. And part of the gospel message, again, it affirms that we are sinners. And we'll get into that in verse 9. Um, again, if we confess or we agree that we are sinners, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we covered again verse 5 last week on what the gospel message is. And, you know, uh, we looked at 1 Corinthians 15. You guys are very familiar with that, you know, in the Apostle Paul's writing there. But here's, here's some features of the gospel. This is the biblical gospel, again, as a reminder. First of all, the gospel is preached. The gospel isn't through osmosis. It is preached. It is preached by a preacher. It is preached by someone who is sent, right? This is Romans chapter 10. So one of the features of the gospel is it's preached. When, a ves- when God uses a vessel to be a mouthpiece and uses the human lips to transcribe his word, there is power in the gospel. And we'll get into this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power of God unto salvation. So the gospel is preached. There's power when we're saying God's word. Now, I'm not, I want to be careful on the false teaching. This is okay enough. If you have the faith you know, of a mustard seed, you can ask this mountain, remove yourself and throw yourself. Not, I'm not talking about that type of faith, but what I'm saying is there is power in the gospel in that it could make dead people alive. When we hear the truth and we are confronted with the truth and we agree with the truth and it is from the mouth of God, then the new birth happens, then the regeneration happens, then you know the sanctification process happens, and then the lifelong process of living out your new Christian faith. But that's one of the features of the gospel. It is, pre- it is preached. It is also heard and received, as I mentioned. We need to hear it. We need to, we need to receive it. We need to believe it. And then we also talked about last week is the gospel is conditional. And, and we, where we left off was, um, and then, you know, if, if you go to any Q&As, any Q&As, you know, the number one question is about election, you know, God's purpose in election and about human will. And if, you know, if God, why did God choose some people and not others? But what we know in scripture, there's a tension. What I mean is this, the gospel is conditional. So every person is commanded to repent. We know that, you know, and God desires that none should perish, but all would come to repentance. We know that from our vantage point and what the, what the scripture says, we are commanded really to repent. It's not even suggested. It says, turn from your wicked ways. You know, you know why, why should we perish? You know, why should, we, why should God give us what we deserve? But so there is this element that we hear the gospel, we believe it, and we exercise our will. And that counts, okay? I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. But we also know at the same time, we can't make ourselves born again. We, 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 can't, we, we, can't, we can't, just as we couldn't choose our physical birth and our physical parents, so we can't choose our spiritual birth and in the time we're born. So we know that it's outside of us, but the command for us to repent and then the condition for us to continue in the faith. We are, we are, we are exhorted, 
we are to, to live from faith to faith. We are not to let go. And, we, and I mentioned this last week, you know, the phrase, let go and let God. And I, go, I go, like, that is completely not scriptural. No, you, 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 you hold on and you trust God. You don't let go and let God. No, you are engaged in the sanctification process. You are part, you know, we're not robots. You know, we are, we are being molded by God and he uses our will, our personalities, our intellect, our, our, our strengths, our weaknesses, everything. He uses that and he ultimately uses for his purpose. But part of the gospel feature is we have a part in it we need to hold on. And, and, and that's very clear in scripture. We went through a lot of scriptures on what that is. And then, of course, we know that the gospel message was delivered by God's holy apostles and prophets. So when Jesus started with the 12 disciples, including Judas, uh, his, you know, when he started his earthly ministry, he was raising up his disciples to be apostles. And they became apostles and they went two by two to the town to bring the good news that Jesus is here. And then after, you know, when Jesus left and, and, and ascended back to heaven, he says, go into Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So we know that part of God's plan and redemption was to use his apostles. And beyond the 12, there was other apostles that were eventually added. We know the apostle Paul, for example, he wasn't part of the original 12. We know that James his, his half-brother became an apostle. We know that there was other apostles that became apostles. So we know it started with the 12, but it expanded to a certain group of individuals who held this office of an apostle. And we know that this gospel message was entrusted to them, was entrusted to the apostles, but also it was entrusted to the associates of the apostles. So we also talked about, like, for example, Luke, uh, John Mark. They are not, Luke was a historian and a doctor. You know, John Mark... He, he was not an apostle. However, he was, they were closely associated with the apostles. They accompanied the apostles when they would go on their missionary journeys, for example. So they were under their protective watch and care. And again, even though scripture doesn't say it, it's also very likely that, like, for example, when Luke penned Luke, he also had, you know, Peter, James, John looking, hey, I'm, I'm writing this gospel. Are, are, we, are we in unison here? Because also when you, when you think about the apostle Paul, when you look at his journey, when he was converted on the road to, to Damascus, he went and preached Christ right away. And he preached for probably about three years or so. He was preaching the gospel. And then he was also, um, there was also some question on, as to whether or not you know, his gospel message is in line with the gospel, you know, um, entrusted to the original disciples. So we know that there was a council when Paul and Barnabas went and Paul presented, hey, here's the gospel message that Jesus entrusted to me. And then they gave him their right hand of fellowship. So all that is to say the gospel message was entrusted to the apostles and their associates and the apostles were probably involved in all of the scriptural writings. And then ultimately the gospel message you know, is, you know, for the most part in the New Testament, because we know that the gospel message has always been in the Old Testament, but we know that the full revelation of what that good news is, was, it was fully revealed. It was un, it was un, um, covered, if you will, uh, in the New Testament writing. So the gospel message was entrusted to the apostles, the associates. And then if you, if you look at the purpose of the church, Really, now the church, the, the body of Christ, the, this entity called the church, we're talking about not the organizational church. Yeah, no, this is the, you know, the big C, you know, church part of, the, of, of Jesus Christ. 
And the really, and here's the, and here's what it really, um, it, it hurts because scripture is clear that the call for any pastor or teacher it's to really, it's to pray, obviously, to pray, for, to pray, uh, to have that uh, pastoral like care and oversight, but also to preach the word, to feed the sheep. When Jesus was affirming Peter, what did he say? He said, feed my sheep. He said that three times, you know, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. So Jesus gave this mandate to the apostles to feed the sheep, and they've done that. We're studying their word. But what happened is now that the apostles are gone, that same call is really for the church and for the leaders. We're just to feed the sheep. Feed the sheep God's word. Don't give them anything else. Give them Christ. Give them the full counsel of his word. All of it. Don't take out the end. Don't take out the beginning. Don't take out some of the middle. You give them the whole counsel of his word. So that's what really pains me in that um, unfortunately, not many pastors or teachers or those who, when they're looking at their shepherds over flock, it's really in that pastoral care. Again, pray for the sheep and take care of the sheep and feed the sheep, you know, bind the sheep, you know, be there for the sheep in that, in, in that way by feeding them Christ, right, and, and his word. And then when we talked about the gospel message, I'm not going to get into that. Again, you can read that in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, there's a lot of different components there, um, but what I what I what I really want to get to today. Remember, uh, we last left off is the gospel is conditional in that we we must we must hold on, we must we must hold fast. We are we are commanded to do that, and here's a reality. Here's a reality. Um, I mean, you know, I'm sure for some of us. We probably know of some who've started off in the faith and all of a sudden their love for Jesus is like nowhere to be found. They probably went through some, you know, rough spots in their life. You know, they probably had some, some trials in their life with hardships or what have you. And they probably felt that God abandoned them or God wasn't there for them or anything along those lines. But all of a sudden their interest in God or in Christ and Christianity it's, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not fully rejecting it, but at the same time, it's no longer driving them. That's a really, really warning. That's a, like, the, if there is a, a warning of red lights flashing in terms of the health of that person's faith and salvation, I mean, it's highly suspect because the, the way you know you have true faith is no matter what you go through, your love for Christ still stands. And that's why that love, which is more precious, you know, that faith, that love in Christ, which is more precious than gold or silver, whatever this world can offer. God allows us to go through trials so that when everything crumbles around us, are you still in the faith? If you're not, then you weren't, if that makes sense. So the condition for us to believe and keep on believing that's an indication. So for those who continue to believe and to persevere, those are the ones who have the true saving faith. Um, and you'll, you heard the, the phrase, you know, perseverance of the saints. Um, and, and, and some of us have heard doctrines of grace. 
which is really, you know, the five points of Calvinism, for example. I hate to use names because some of us, depending on our background, when you say a word, we probably shy away because there's some labels. It could be positive, negative, a little bit of both. Um, The perseverance of the saints, because the scripture is clear. True born-again believers will persevere. The the scripture is, is very clear on that. So if you have saving faith, you will persevere in this life because the faith that was given to you as a gift was given by God and God starts what he finishes. And that's exactly what he says in Philippians 1 verse 6, for I am confident of this very thing, Paul writes there, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. Um, The another word for perfect is accomplished. So let me read that again. For I am confident of this very thing that he, God, Christ, who began a good work in you will accomplish it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that accomplishment is in salvation. Uh, you know, Corinth, uh, 1 Corinthians 1 verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, I got cut off here, uh, where it says, Jesus will confirm, establish you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus. So that's for, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 8. Jesus will confirm, Jesus will establish you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And we'll get into this in, in the book of Romans. Um, and I, and I, look forward, I, I look forward to this particular passage, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So right there, scripture again is clear. God is the one who calls. God is the one who chooses. And God is the one who justifies. And God is the one who glorifies. Um, we'll, look, we'll look at another one. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Oh, I don't have this on your slide there. I added this afterwards. Uh, oh, is it? Oh, on yours. Yeah, because I printed one last week. You, you got the, 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 the good one. <laughs> for, it is good, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here's, here's, a, here's a mystery. So we have a will, and we are to exercise that will. And in obedience and love for God, right, we are to live out our faith. Yet, when we're living it out, it says, it is God who has work in you. So the, the new birth that we have, and, and a good way to look at it, um, think about ourselves when we were babies. You know, when we came into this, first of all, when we became uh, conceived. Yeah, and we don't remember that, of course. But once there is a conception within the God's creative order and in our DNA, it just, it just programs. And next thing you know, we become, you know, a full baby, right? And then once we get to a certain point in that development, obviously we become born, but then our physical selves, we are 
aging. <laughs> we can't really do anything about it. But uh, our, our body is programmed and it just works. And if you think about it, you know, healing properties of the body, for example, right? You don't have to tell your body, oh, let me, um, hey, all right, body, you know, I got a cut. Can you heal that? Or I broke my bone. Can you mend that? Our body is programmed to repair itself. Uh, our body is programmed to get rest, charge back up, and then, you know, kind of like recharging our batteries, so to speak, right? And then keep going. So the point is, there are things that are happening that is out of our control. It's not us. So in that kind of same way, when it says, for it is God who has a work in you, if you kind of think about it spiritually, God is doing something. And it's taking its time. You know, we don't grow overnight. Um, but over time, you start to see, like you mentioned, Isaiah got taller, right? You know, you haven't seen him for a while, and then now you've seen him, you're like, oh, you got taller. You know, you might see someone, and you might notice something different because time has passed, and, you're, and, and certain things have changed. So in that same way, when God is working in us, um, we don't see it, but he's working and our spiritual growth and, and, and development. I mean, we are, we're sanctified in, in when, when all is said and done, we are sanctified. Like right now we're sanctified. And one of our past uh, lessons, like we possess eternal life right now. Uh, and again, we talked a little bit about there are some things that are all that began now we have now, but won't come to its full fruition until we, either we die and then are glorified. But we have eternal life right now, and it'll manifest itself once we are raised and glorified and united back to our body. So in that same way, we're sanctified already, but we're still in that process of being sanctified. But in God's eyes, it's already done. And it's just a matter of letting, allowing time to run its course and God working out his purposes and plan. But the perseverance of the saints, the perseverance... That is a true doctrine that is affirmed in Scripture. And I just read you some, some samples on what those verses are. So this, uh, this perseverance of the saints. So if someone doesn't continue in the faith, they never had the faith to begin with. That's the only conclusion that we can come with. But the, the, the scary part is it's hard to tell and whether or not someone else has it. But our job isn't to know whether, my job isn't to know whether necessarily you have it. My job is for myself to know that I have it. I'm, 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 you know, I'm in the faith. I'm, I know that I'm, I'm redeemed. I know that I'm born again. And then, yeah, then when you just do God's work, and again, in obedience and in love and all that stuff, he works out all the other stuff. But we know that there are going to be those who are going to start into faith and not finish. And there's going to be those who start into faith, doesn't look like they finish, but then they actually do come back. And obviously that shows that, again, God was working in them and allowing them to go through that, that little, um, or that, that detour. But the point is, true believers will have true saving faith and true saving faith neither height nor depth, nor powers, you know, angels, right? No. I mean, Paul talked about all the extremities in Romans chapter 8. He goes, nothing can separate us from the love of God who is in Christ. So, again, we're, we're, we're solid. And that doctrine and that truth, we could really face anything. 
Um, if we waver in that, then of course we're going to be ineffective. Um, we're we're going to be a, an enemy to ourselves. Really, we're going to be an impediment to our own our own spiritual development and pro, um, process. Okay, now I do want to look at this phrase: "God is light." We we hear this: "God is light." Okay, up to verse five, um, up to this point, I should say, up to this point in the passage. John uses two phrases to describe God. The first phrase was wor- um, the word of life. And we went on a, again, we went to John's gospel on that, John chapter 8. We looked at the discourse between Jesus and uh, the Jews and that Jesus you know, said, I am the bread of life. And he, he referred to the manna, the true manna that came down from heaven. But when, when John says word of life, he's, also, he's saying Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is eternal life. That's what is behind that phrase, word of life. Now, when it says God is light, and I, and I think you should have it underlined there, God is light. Again, light is used to describe one of God's attributes. So if we're saying, well, God is light, meaning in him there is no darkness at all. So light is contrasted with darkness. I do want to talk a little bit about here. Don't confuse when God said, let there be light, to God is light. They're completely separate. And I, I want to I talk a little bit about this. So in Genesis 1-3, right, light was created. And light was created before the sun and moon. The fact that light was created, obviously, it's not God. God is the creator. God isn't created. So in Genesis 1-3, light was created. Again, that was before the sun and moon. So what did that light look like? If there is right now, the reason why we can see, um, generally speaking, when you go outside, the reason why you can see is because the sun is illuminating, right? Illuminating so we can actually see. At night, right, the moon, the, the, the moon is reflecting the, the sun, and it's giving us a dim of light, but the fact that we can see is really the sun and the moon is, you know, is really the, the means by which we can actually see things. But something to think about is when God created light, what was that light? Um, here's another thing. Uh, in 1 John 1, 5, it, it talk, in, um, we talked about here, light describes God. So let's look at Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5 really quick. Uh, a very familiar passage to all of us. The very opening of, of the Bible. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, there it is, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And then there was evening, and then there was morning. Um, and I do want to, so right there we see, before God created the sun and moon, he created light. He said that the light was good. And then he separated the light from the darkness. Again, without, without the sun and the moon, he separated those two things. And I want to refer, I want to look at uh, another passage talking about what that means. Job 26 so in the context here, you know, Job was getting all this bad advice from his friends and he's like, look, I haven't done anything. I haven't done anything. And here's one of his rebukes. He's rebuking 
um, one of his friends that were trying to counsel him. And he gets into uh, a truth about God and about his creative order. So let's look at it. Uh, Job 26, beginning at verse 5. The departed spirits tremble under the waters in their inhabitants. Naked is Shoal or the grave before him, and Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon and he and spreads his cloud over it. And here it is. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. And this one always, um, you know, tripped me out. You know why the ocean, why does it stop right at the shore? Because God said stop. <laughs> and of course, he uses the gravitational pull. He uses his creative order. But in his command, yeah, it can be verified by science. But we know that ultimately God gave boundaries to even where the waters would go on the beach. Here's another thing. It says, at the boundary of light and darkness. So there's even a bound, there, light and darkness is separate. How did God separate light and darkness? He created boundaries around light and darkness. So if you were to take scripture with scripture, here's where I'm getting at. In the creation account, when God said, let there be light, God was establishing, making boundaries of morning light and evening darkness. So he, when he, when he, in his part of his creative order, he was making these boundaries so that there is again, morning light, evening darkness. Then later God created the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night. So the, the sun and moon was put there because God already separated and created boundaries. And now the sun and moon is going to work in harmony with what God has made boundaries of. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> so, so, so God uses, again, so he used, um, you know, the heavens, right? Uh, the, the stars, moon, sun, he uses the planet, whatever. He uses his creation to really orchestrate his will and what he's, what he's decided to do. Now, is it clear that when it says, let there be light, it's not talking about God. He, he's, again, he's creating light to separate from darkness, and he was making boundaries from the light and darkness. So now I want to look at when John says God is light. Um, we could have went to, you know, Jesus, I am the light of the world statement, and that is, that is good. Uh, let's go to the Old Testament here in Micah. Um, so the context here, you know, Micah, he's like, first of all, who am I? You know, like, kind of like Isaiah in that vein, you know, I am a man of unclean lips. You know, in, in the context here, Micah is like, Lord, what can we bring you? I mean, he goes, you know, can I bring you the sacrifice of animals, of, of all these fattened calves? Can I bring you something out of my work until to pretty much make me right before your sight. And Micah, so he knows he can't. He goes, you know, like it's, it's, it's along what the writer of Hebrews says, you know, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Micah was kind of saying the same thing. What can I bring for you to give me righteousness? And, and Micah is acknowledging that there is nothing he could do. But here's, but then he looks at hope here in uh, beginning, uh, Micah 7, beginning in verse 7. Let's read that. 
He says, but as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. Here it is. How, how are you going to get I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. He goes, do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, here it is. The Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. So he acknowledges I've sinned against God and only God can be just. And if he were to forgive me, it has to come from God, the source of my salvation. He goes, look, he will bring me out to the light. And here's where I want to make the connection. And I will see his righteousness. So where I want to get at is, when this says God is light, there's a connection. God is righteousness. Because when you walk in the light, you're going to see the righteousness of God. And then you're going to in turn see your unrighteousness. So to when we're saying God is light, again, the point is there is a connection with his righteousness. That's one of his other attributes. God is light and God is righteousness. God is righteous. Um, again, and I, I did pull it out, <clears throat> John eight twelve. Jesus is the light of the world. We know this familiar passage. Then Jesus spoke to them, again, the Jews saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And I, I don't know if you guys remember this, but at HCC, you know, I, I preached on Jesus is the light of the world. And some historical backgrounds here. So the Jews, when they were observing, you know, this festival, they had this lighting of the menorah and it was likely in the process of them lighting this huge menorah and they, they would light it at the top that this was a tradition that that they started it was at you know likely at that point in time when they were doing that jesus is pointing the significance of that to himself again he's saying i am the light of the world he who follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. But you see here, we see light and darkness. And um, now we see Jesus is attributing the, the light with the darkness. He's saying, I am the light. And if you walk in the light as, you know, and that's what John says, right? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we are cleansed, right, um, of our sin. So here, here's, here's all that... All that is to say, let's put it together. When, when it says God is light, if you take scripture, for example, Micah, 1 John, and John, when John says God is light, here's what he's saying. God is the source of righteousness. God is righteousness. Righteousness comes with eternal life. So if you say, okay, what comes with righteousness? Eternal life. That's part of who God is, because God is righteous. He is eternal life. Um, And here's where I was getting at. Seeing God's righteousness is light. Okay, so here, um, I want to throw something out there. You know, I I mentioned in the beginning, you know, about the gospel message being watered down and everything. And could you truly be saved? Could you have received the true gospel message if you didn't get the magnitude of the righteousness of God? I mean, the rhetorical answer is no, because we we haven't walked in the light. To walk into light is to see God's holiness, to see God's righteous standards. 
So what happens is, you know, and then, you know, for those of, you know, for those of us, we, when we came to faith, there was this realization, oh man, God is holy. He's a holy roller, right? God is righteous. And we're like, and then, <laughs> and he can, he knows our thought life. He knows our sin. And we're like, you know, we want to like be like Adam and Eve and, and cover, cover ourselves. But it's coming to grips when we see that God is righteous. And because we are unrighteous, if we, sta- if we stay in the state, then in God's righteousness, we will get judgment. That has to happen. You know, if, if we don't have that picture of God's holiness, and we don't have that light of God, then that's not the gospel. That's why this is the message. John says here in this passage, this is the message. God is light. He's, another way to say is, here's the gospel message. God is light. God is righteousness. Did you get that? Anything that diminishes the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, that's not the gospel. That's, that's a watered-down gospel. That's not the message that John gave. That's not the message that he gave in his gospel. That's not the message that he's affirming here. So that's kind of the whole point here when he says God is light. And in God, there is righteousness. There is light. There is good. Right? He's good. There's goodness. There's life. And then because of that, in God, there is no unrighteousness. There's no darkness. There's no evil. There's no sin. There's no death. So here's, here's a mystery about Christ. You know, Christ in his humanity, we know that he can't be tempted. I mean, he was tempted as, yet, as we are, but yet without sin. But yet in his deity, he can't be tempted with sin. You can't tempt God to sin. In him, there's no darkness at all. It's not even a possibility. It's an impossibility. So one of the mysteries about the incarnation of Christ is because he took upon himself human flesh, then he could... Be be suspect, you know. Um, uh, he can face external temptations. It can come at him this way, but you know, within his heart and in his spirit, he can't sin. That's why he was sinless. So no matter what, he felt the temptations. He felt he felt the pressure of the temptation, but never in his spirit. There's nothing evil in him. He can't be tempted by sin, but yet he was tempted in every way we are. And that he can therefore be our great high priest and he can sympathize with us because he faced the external, but just know in his spirit is righteousness, is light. He can't, he can't sin. Again, that, that's one of, the, one of the, the beauties and mysteries of his incarnation. And here's where the conclusion is. Anything against God's righteousness, that means all unrighteousness, all darkness, all evil, all sin is against God. And because of that, condemnation. That's why the whole world, apart from Christ, were condemned. Because God is righteous and anything opposite of his righteousness is condemnation. And because we've sinned in our natural state, that's our condition. Uh, In the next slide, I don't know if you guys have this one, but you just kind of follow along. I like to do do the plug-in because when you take the name of the Trinity and, and you put, you know, like, so Jesus, right, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and you put him in there, it, it makes it really clear. So if you take Scripture with, with Scripture, we say, when John says, you know, God is light, you know, you say, you know, really, Jesus is light. Jesus is the source of righteousness. Jesus is righteousness. Righteousness comes with eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. 
right? Jesus' righteousness is light, is life. Uh, in Jesus, there is righteousness, light, good, again, eternal life. And in Jesus, there is no unrighteousness, there is no darkness, there is no evil, there is no sin, and there is no death. I mean, he experienced death, but death couldn't keep him because, again, in his spirit is without sin, so death could not have mastery over him, and that's why he rose from the dead. So that's the, the, the very fact. So we go, why did Jesus rise from the dead? Because he's too righteous to stay dead. He can't stay dead, but for a time, because that was part of his divine will and plan to pay for the full payment for our sin, he took upon himself the human flesh. And in, as a human, he could die, meaning his body can die. But yet we know that in his spirit never died. So even though the body went in the grave, we know that Jesus, again, he went first to the angels who fell in the days of Noah and he preached, he preached victory over them really. And then he went back to the father before he came back to the body because he said, into thy hands, speaking to the father, he goes, I commit my spirit. So we know that Jesus went back to the father in those three days. However, we know that he also took a detour. When you look at Peter's writing, we know that he went and made a proclamation to the spirits now held in prison, the ones who've caused uh, the people of the world in that time to sin in the days of Noah. So Jesus is, is that. And because Anything against Jesus' righteousness? Again, you put where God is, Jesus is God, God is Jesus. Anything against Jesus' righteousness? Again, is unrighteousness, is darkness, is evil, is sin, is condemnation. That's why Jesus said, he who is not with me, we know this, right, is against me. And the context there was, you know, the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. And they were, the, the, his, his enemies, you know, the Jews, the religious leaders were trying to um, attribute the casting out of demons by the power of Beelzebul. And so in that context, he's saying, look, first of all, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by which do your people cast demons out? But he goes, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, by the finger of God, he goes, then know that the kingdom of God is in your midst. He's saying, the righteous one is here. The king of the kingdom promised in the Old Testament is right here. So if I'm casting out by the power of the spirit, just know that the kingdom of God, the king, Jesus, the capital K, is in your midst, is, is, is among you. But um, again, if you're not with me, he says, then you are against me. He who is not with me scatters. And you know what that means? So every human being apart from Christ again, in their natural condition and natural self, is condemnation. There's nothing else. There's no, you know, there's no wishful thinking, okay, God is love, you know, maybe those, you know, they didn't know any better, and even though God gave them this life to live, um, you know, just cut them, a, cut them a, some slack. No, that's it. You know, in our natural selves, because God is righteous, if we don't come to Christ, then we will be punished for our sins. That's part of the gospel message. Okay, that's verse five. Yeah, but see for, see for me, um, I don't know, this stuff charges me because again, everything I'm telling you, it's, it's from his word, you know, it's from, it's from his scripture. And what's interesting is when you actually do the digging and you see how scripture all connects, it becomes really, really hopefully loud and clear. And just know this, and one of the takeaways from today 
is part of the gospel message is God is light and God is righteous. So here's the thing. So when you, when you share the gospel message, which we, we want to go right to, oh, you know, God loves you, right? Just like, you know, uh, I've been studying the Bible and learning more about God and how he's really righteous. I mean, like perfect. And, and in him, there's no evil, there's no darkness. And that's, that should really be part of the conversation because then you're, you're exposing the light. <laughs> you're exposing God's righteousness. You're exposing the gospel message. And then, so what happens is once that gospel message is preached and the, God's light and God's righteousness is loud, then we, the prayer is, okay, because he's right, it exposes us because we are not righteous at all. And we can't be made righteous and all that stuff. So that's why part of the gospel message, again, if we follow the pattern of the scriptures, it'll also allow us to apply it and share the gospel, um, you know, the, the best way we can by, by just really following the example set before us. So let's stop there. So amen. All right, let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, as, as we close in prayer, Father, uh, your word is clear. Your word is a light, a lamp unto our feet. Uh, Lord, we know through your word, in your unmitigated glory, O oh God, that you are righteous and that even from the mouth of your, your prophets, O oh God, that once they've seen a glimpse of your glory and they've seen your light, they've seen your righteousness, as the lips of Isaiah said, oh, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Lord, we know that when we come to your truth, uh, your true unadulterated truth, we know that it, it, first of all, it exalts who you are, but it also reveals the sinfulness of our hearts. So Lord, we thank you for illuminating in our hearts the delight uh, for showing us uh, Jesus as the light, as the righteousness, as the only righteous one. And thank you, Jesus, for imputing and sharing your righteousness to those of us who have come to receive and embrace you. Uh, Lord, our prayer is that as we learn more about you, uh, that we would fall um, in, in greater reverence, in greater appreciation, in greater worship, O oh God, uh, for who you are in your, in your true majesty. And Lord, our prayer is that in your mercy and in your grace uh, that you would make these dead bones live and that you would cause it to, to be fruitful in love and in deed. So Lord, as we close our study today, Lord, we ask you to seal the truth that you revealed to us in your word. And Lord, continue to uh, help us, O oh God, because it could be a frightening thing to learn more about you, Lord, but we know that the more we know about you, the more we know you. And the more we know you, the more we will worship and adore and revere you. So continue to uh, hold us, sustain us until we meet again. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.